Matthew chapter 2, and we're going to read portions of 1 through 11, or 1 through 12. But I want to get you ready for it just a little bit. First of all, actually, is to underscore one of the announcements. Um, I really want to encourage you to invite your neighbors. There are cards that you could take. They're on a little table as you leave the sanctuary. You could take some of those cards, give them out, and just invite people to one of the Christmas Eve services. This is going to be so fun. It's one of my favorite, if not my favorite service of the year. There's just something special about Christmas Eve. So I really want to encourage you. You've got three choices, 3 o'clock, 4.30, and 6. And wait till you see what we've got cooking up. A couple things that we've never done here before at Cornerstone, they are likely to be complete catastrophes. So you could come laugh at us as we plan these extravagant events. So, but it's going to be centered on the gospel. If you've got unsaved family and friends... You really want to bring them to that service. They're going to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, both in song and in sermon and displayed in our love. So I want to really encourage you, do not miss this Christmas Eve service and bring people with you. It's going to be a lot of fun. All right, now that being out of the way, it's actually going to segue very nicely to what I want to prepare you for before we stand and worship. And if you're at home watching this, Let me encourage you to get your Bible. Don't just passively listen to these sermons. Get your Bible out as well because I'm going to ask you to do the oddest thing of which I will never hold you accountable. I can't. I'm going to ask you to stand as well. So I want to encourage you to think about this question. And listen, this sermon, more than most that I preach, is going to be one where I need you to think because I want you to master what we're going to talk about. And for the reason that if you master even the beginning of a journey of what I'm going to talk to you about, your life will radically change. That's not an empty promise. That's the gospel's promise. So I'm going to ask you to think and master really the answer to this question. Have you ever wondered, have you ever deeply contemplated, thought on, What motivated the wise men to travel all of that distance from the Parthian Empire, modern Iran, Iraq, all the way down to Jerusalem, and then Bethlehem? You know, it took Ezra in the Old Testament, in the book of Ezra, four months to go from Babylon with a whole caravan of people and animals down to Jerusalem, four months. Now, I don't think it took the wise men that long, but let me ask you, what motivated them to take the trip? Now, are you thinking? Are you contemplating this? The answer to this question that I'm going to show you, you must master it. You must. Or your life is going to be one of joyless duty to the Lord. That is not the gospel. Now, I'm going to have you stand in a moment. But before I do, let me tell you just a little bit more. Rome, you've heard the saying, all roads lead to Rome. Rome, The Roman Empire had 50,000 miles of road by the first century. Paved, tiled, multi-layered, so they didn't wash out in a flood. Not easily. But the Parthian Empire, while the Romans were incredible road builders, the Parthians, not so much. It's almost like going on Route 81, 
North Pennsylvania, and you're clumping, clumping, clumping every road divider, and then you pass into New York, and it's just so smooth. That's like coming out of the Parthian Empire to the Roman Empire and traveling south to Jerusalem. Why would they take this arduous, difficult trip? that some believe it was in between 500 to 1,000 miles, depending on what part of the Parthian Empire they came from. I think it was likely Babylon, which means it was around 600 to 650 miles each way. What motivated them to take that trip? What got their feet moving? Well, we're going to discover that. Stand with me if you would, and I'm going to read just portions of Matthew chapter 2. So if you could turn your Bibles open to Matthew chapter 2 and follow along with me as I read. We stand to bring honor to God's word, that it's the authority over us. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea and the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Verse 11, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. You may be seated as we conclude the reading of God's word. Now we're gonna unpack it. Now I've asked you a question. What motivated them to make this incredibly difficult, long, uncomfortable journey? And you're gonna discover the answer in verse two. Let's look at it together. They ask Herod, the king of the Jews, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now, I want you to hear me. The star got their attention. But what got their feet moving was that they wanted and they desired to worship him. Now, you may think, well, my goodness, after all that buildup and all that introduction, that was so underwhelming. This must be mastered. And if you do not master what I'm going to teach you, what we see from the wise men, your life will not be full of the joy of long and longing of being with God. You must master this, and that's the goal of this message. The star got their attention, but what got their feet moving was their desire to worship him. They wanted to worship the one born king of the Jews. Now listen, did you hear that? Not the one who was born and would become the king of the Jews. No, no, no. The kingship of Jesus is eternal. He was king before he was born. His birth was his introduction to the world. And the wise men understood it and they went to worship him. But I have only literally broken the surface of this. We are going to go deep. We are going to spelunk our hearts and explore the caves of our most inner beings. And here's where we go down into it. When you think of worship, when you think of the biblical word worship and the act of worship, don't reduce it to singing. I think we all know that. 
or even don't reduce it to the offertory when you give money either online like we do or in the basket that's passed. Don't reduce it. You've got to elevate it. You've got to expand it. Worship is whole life living. So when you think of worship, though, and most don't know this, the Bible always associates it with the word trembling. Did you know that? All right, now think, contemplate, reflect on this, trembling. But I've got to correct something immediately because some people either here or online have come from legalistic churches where if you didn't do this, then God would do that. He had his finger poised over the smite button, and when you got out of line with him, something bad was going to happen in your life. That's not the gospel. So when I teach you that you've got to associate the word trembling with worship, it's not trembling out of fear. It's not trembling out of terror that God is upset with you, or if you get out of line, he's going to punish you. No, it is something entirely different, and I'm going to explain it to you with this. Now, my son Aaron served in the army in a fairly advanced, actually quite advanced unit, a recon unit. And they worked with the Green Berets and he was stationed in Afghanistan for nine months. And while there in Camp Antonik, which was the tip of the spear for Camp Leatherneck, or Leather something, Camp whatever, a really, really big camp. He was on a distant remote camp right at the tip of the spear. He worked with the Green Berets and particularly the canine unit of the Green Berets. And he would help train their dog. Now the dog that the canine unit had was a Belgian Malinois. So my son comes out of the army and does, guess what? He goes back to Fort Hood, Texas, and he looks and he looks and he looks until he finally finds a Belgian Malinois for sale, a puppy, and he buys it. Asher is his name. And Asher, when you look into his eyes, it's honestly like, Asher, are you human? He's that intelligent. He is so intelligent. He's the most intelligent dog that I've ever seen. Now, before he died, we had a golden retriever named Charlie. Correspondingly, Charlie was the dumbest dog that I've ever seen. So watching them play together was actually comical. Asher, however, literally the most intelligent dog I've ever met and, unfortunately, the most excitable dog I've ever seen. Now watch this, because this is worship. When Aaron comes home, he will often come home with a toy for Asher, a new toy. It'll be in a bag. He'll come up and he will make Asher sit and Asher immediately goes down. Now listen, Asher's eyes never leave the bag. And his whole body starts trembling, starts quivering with a longing and with an excitement. Now, I'm not a dog psychologist, but it's pretty easy to see what's going through that heart of that dog. He wants the toy more than anything in that moment. Now, we're getting close to what worship means. And I want to give it to you like this. You see, worship is a single-minded desire that demands to be expressed toward God with a yearning that can cause your soul to tremble. 
Now, I'm very aware that a lot of you, this is gibberish. We don't really know what that means because we've never really experienced this. But watch how I unpack this, and you're going to start getting, I hope, a desire for this experience. You see, worship is the greatest experience that is possible for your life. It's a desire to express your love and your devotion, hear this, for the one for whom you were made. This is desire, this is the longing called worship. Now I wanna tell you something before I even go further. The, word, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the vital union of being in Christ and Christ being in you like a branch is in the tree and the vine brings it to sap, that gospel works from the inside out. You know how the world works? The exact opposite works from the outside in. I'll show you an example. Right now, we've got, well, you know, you're probably getting last minute gifts. People that love you are asking, what do you want for Christmas? And here's how it works, the world works. It baits a hook with a tantalizing purchase. And that bait only works if there's a desire in your heart. And the world knows this, and the devil knows this. This is all of what advertising, why they spend billions of dollars on it. They mastered how it works. That baited hook begins to open the mouth of your heart wide to bite. You know what widens your mouth? You know it as well as I do. Well, you know what? Let me just do a little research. You get on Amazon, you read the reviews, and all of a sudden, it moves from a want to a need. I need this. My life will be so much better if I get it. And if you're like me, you begin all the work of convincing your spouse why it's a necessary purchase, and all along, it's not a need at all, it's a want. But the world cleverly moves it from a want to a need. And when you get it to a need, you bite down on that hook and it pulls you to land and you make the purchase. You see, the world works from the outside in. It dangles something that you want, turning it into a need, but the gospel, listen to this, the gospel works from the inside out. It is totally different. God begins to change your affections, your longings, your desires, your expectations, your dreams, so that you begin to have the want to in order to live the ought to. See, it's totally different. God does not say, here's what you've got to do and figure out how to do it. That's moralism, that's legalism, and that will render you miserable. The gospel not only changes your want, gives you the want to to do what you ought to, it is the power to do it. The gospel is the power of being with Christ to do it. Now watch this unfold from Psalm 42, an extremely familiar verse. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. And almost no one reads the rest of the verse. And yet I think it's the most important part. When shall I come and appear before God? You know what the psalmist is saying? 
He's saying, God, when are we going to hang out? When are we going to be together? Everything in me is quivering in my soul. It's trembling to be with you. I have a longing that's so deep that my day is not right. It's not complete. It's not like a Rubik's Cube. It's all, Rubik's Cube, it's all scrambled up. It all comes into alignment when you and I get together. Now watch what the psalmist didn't say. Man, I got to get up a little earlier and get my quiet time or my day's not going to go very well. Oh my goodness, that's joyless duty. That's not coming from the gospel. That's not coming from the vital unity that you have with Jesus Christ. No, it's when you get up and all day, if you're hungering, if you're really famished, all you think about is food. If you're really dehydrated, all you think about is water. Listen, the gospel creates in you a hunger and a thirst. For what? For God, to be with him. Your soul is quivering to be with him. All you can think about is when is it just going to be God and me? When will I appear before you, God? And when you get that time, everything comes to rest. That's the gospel producing worship. All right, well, some of you, probably men, are thinking, oh my goodness, this is so emotional. This is so feelings-oriented. I just, I'm not comfortable. Oh, I have harsh words for you in my mind that are gonna be so gracious. It's more than emotions. Worship is more than emotions. It's not like some churches where you go to the service and it, it's almost like going to a school pep rally. It just works your emotions up so you win the Friday night game. It's not like that. It's not like an emotionally um, you know, rallying cry when you go to the services. No, fundamentally below it all, it's your mind. It's truth. It's not feelings oriented at the beginning. It's driven by truth. You see, the word worship, let me give you another word for it. Let me give you another metaphor, and we'll take another canine example, okay? I mean, I've taught you this before, but worship is truly the word that they would say when the master of the home would come home into the courtyard of his house, and their, the dog would come out and lick his fingers. This word worship literally means to lick the fingers of the master because you are so longing there's such an affection. Did I do that? There's such a desire in you for God that you just want to even almost remind him that you're there. You know, I used to walk Charlie on a lot of walks. We walked miles and miles several times a week. And we would be walking, and I always thought this was so interesting, and I didn't really know, and I don't know why he was doing it, but we would be walking, and I almost never leashed him. Like all those Forks Township Facebook angry things about people. That, that was coming from me. Sorry. But I never leashed him, almost never, and we would be walking, and every once in a while, Charlie would just raise his head and lick my finger while we were walking, and then he would go trotting off and doing his thing, and he would come back and do it again. He just wanted to keep, I don't know, I think, reminding me that he was there, getting my attention, expressing his affection for me. And again, I'm not a dog psychologist, but listen, this is what worship is. This is what the word means. It means to kiss the fingers of the master. It's an all-consuming adoration. So to worship Christ is to adore him. 
to be utterly convinced of his greatness, to respond with our devotion, trembling, quivering with an excitement and an affection for him. This is the worship of the wise men. And it motivated them to make this long journey and give him the best of what they had. Now, this is good news or bad news, depending on how you like sermons. That was my introduction. But I had to give it to you. Because none of the rest of this is going to explode in your heart until you understand what worship is. Here we go. Verse 11. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. You know what I think is the least valued word in verse 11? Look at it again, I'll show you. To me, I think it's this word. Oddly, the word then. But it changes everything. And there are Christians that have taken the word then out of this and turned worship into a duty and lost their joy. Now, let me tell you something before I even tell you why I'm telling you that. You know what? When my, my father and my mom, they were one of four couples that started the church that I grew up in. He wasn't a pastor. He was an elder all of my growing up years. But he was also a contractor, and he was known, my dad, Ackley and Harvey Construction, for building churches all over New York State. So he built the church that I grew up in. And we lived 25 minutes from it. And every Sunday morning, without fail, you've got to be near death to not be going. You are at church. And in the evening on Sundays, you are at church. And I hated it. My teenage years, I hated it. I would sit in that pew, probably a lot like some of you are, and I would think of everything I could just to make the time go faster. Please, hurry that preacher up. Going to church was a duty that I had no choice of, and it was certainly not a delight. By the way, you know what pastors are discovering all over literally the world? You know what COVID is showing pastors all over the world? It's showing all along, in many cases, not every, but in many cases, who are the people that really wanted to worship Christ with their family, their church family, and who are the ones that found it a joyless duty? Because those in the second category have stopped coming to church, and they probably will never be back. Numbers are down everywhere. And in most cases, it's those who went to, work, went to church but didn't enjoy it, did not want to be there, and they don't go anymore. Very interesting. You think God is maybe shaking his church and purifying his church? Do you not see COVID as being part of that? I think it is. I'm always encouraging people online, if you're healthy, if you can, get back to church and find your delight in worshiping with your covenantal church family. It's that important. But if you take out the word then, it butchers this verse. 
Here's what it does. Allow me the moment to just reconstruct verse 11, reading it a little bit differently. Opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh, and they fell down and worshiped him. It destroys the verse because worship cannot come on the end of gift giving. It must propel gift giving. It must be the spring for giving to God. The fountain for giving to God. No, the wise men fell down and worshiped, and then the word then occurs, they offered him gifts. Their gift giving came from their hearts of trembling and adoring and excitement-filled worship. You see, worship must precede giving to God or it will become a distorted, selfish, joyless duty. Now, as I'm saying that, and you're reading it up on the screen, just pause. I'm going to slow down for a moment to give you time to reflect because you cannot walk out of here the same way you're coming in. That would be a waste of church. And I've been telling you, you've got to contemplate, you've got to master what I'm teaching you this morning. Is your giving, the time that you spend getting somebody to the hospital that doesn't have a car, the money that you give the people out of work that are really going through a hard time. Your giving, the way that you tirelessly serve your family, though you are never thanked, is that springing from a life of worship or has it come into joyless, selfish duty? You will be miserable if that is you. And that is not what the gospel is producing. Parents, we understand this because on Christmas mornings, and we're about to experience it pretty soon, we experience that our affection and our love for our children move us to joyfully give them gifts. I mean, what a terrible parenting experience it would be if we thought like this. Well, I know what my son's friend is probably going to get for Christmas because they always get a lot of gifts. So let's do the research. Let's spend the money. Let's get them something. That would be awful parenting. That would be joyless duty. You're just buying gifts because really you, it's a fear. It's a selfish fear. Is it not so much better when your love for your children absolutely delights? You know what it used to be for us? I, I mourn this. I've asked Denise, let's have another kid because I want to get this back again. And she doesn't think, think kindly of that idea. I have four children all the way from 27 to, to 16. But my youngest one, Andy, did something that none of the other children ever did or at least did something consistently that they did not do. Andy from a toddler, oddly, all the way till about two years ago when he was almost 14, every Christmas morning, see the way that we do gifts at the Ackley family is we go one at a time. We don't pile all the gifts in front of each person and go to town. No, no, no. We revel in gift giving. So you get one gift at a time, and everybody's focus is on you. And you open that gift, and every single time Andy would open a gift, he would scream out in delight, stand up, and he would run to the one who gave him the gift and literally leap into their arms and hug them and kiss them and thank them over and over. And all the while, Denise and I are just sitting there with our hearts full of love and joy. Why? Because that's 
what love does. Love wants to give. And when you pant before the Lord, Psalm 42, and you say, God, I can't wait for us to get together. When are we going to find time together? When am I going to meet with you again? And all day you're quivering and you're trembling and you're longing with adoration in your heart to be with God. And all of a sudden you get that time with God. It's almost like the whole world recedes and everything in your soul aligns. It's like the Rubik's Cube. One more twist and it's back to all the tiles and the cover colors lined up it's what you were created for it's worship and it's a fountain for giving you see worship is an internal spring of adoration that moves us to give our lives to God single-minded focus now watch this it was a wellspring of adoration that moved the wise men. Remember I told you last week that in the Parthian Empire, if you were of equal status and saying hello to somebody else, you gave them a kiss on the lips. That's how you greeted them. But if they were slightly more important than you, slightly of a higher rank or authority than you, then you kissed on the cheeks. But if, they're, if they were vastly more important, vastly outranking you. The only appropriate greeting would be if you would fall down on your knees first, your forehead second, and then you would wave kisses to them. It's the third that the wise men did because they knew they were in the presence of a one to two-year-old toddler boy that was the king of all kings. They knew and they worshiped. What was in their hearts came pouring out. And look what they did. They opened up their treasures. The word in the Greek means caskets or boxes. And out of those boxes, they offered the Christ King their gifts. And I want you to see something. When You will know when worship is streaming, when worship is springing with a quivering longing, you're giving, then you will close the calculator app in your mind you will not be computing the cost to yourself. No. You know what you'll be doing? You'll be looking at your gift and going, is this enough? Is this fitting? Is this fitting for my king? For my God of whom my soul longs for? Is this worthy of him? Not how much this is costing me. Can I afford this? No, you won't even think about it. It's, is this gift worthy of my God? That's when you know worship is filling your heart. They opened their treasures, out came gold first. It was always gold that was the most worthy gift for a king. But not an earthly king for an earthly throne, but the one born king of all kings. Look at what Philippians 2, and I'm going to skip to the end. Philippians 2, therefore God has highly exalted Jesus, and every tongue, verse 11, confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is king to the glory of God the Father. And then they opened that casket again, and out came the second gift. And it was frankincense, which is an incense. And they would mix it with oil. And its most fundamental purpose for Israel was to anoint a man when he became a priest. You see, the first gift is for the king of all kings, the ruler and creator of the universe. The second gift is for the high priest who will work redemption 
for his people. But look at the third gift, and I want to ask you a question. How much do you know about myrrh? What do you know about myrrh? Now, let me show you something just briefly. Frankincense was very interesting. You did several sap draws of frankincense, and the most pure was always the first one, and it would turn white. Myrrh very differently turned brown. This is actually an extremely good approximation of what myrrh looks like. And how they made myrrh, or how they harvested myrrh and farmed myrrh, was not like they did entirely, or at least not from the same trees as frankincense, which was tapped from the Boswellian trees. Just like we get maple syrup, you tap the tree and out comes the sap. Well, you striped, you cut the bark, the tree of the Boswellian trees, and out would ooze the sap, and that would be how they would make frankincense or harvest it. But the myrrh tree, or the myrrh is coming from the Comifora tree, but you did the same thing, you called striping. You cut laterally these stripes, and over the next several days would slowly ooze out a thick globule of sap called resin. They actually named them tears because they looked like tears just hanging onto the side of the tree. And they would take either a wooden or metal, modern, they still harvest this, paint scraper, and they would scrape those tears off onto a board and leave it into the sun to harden into these crystallized resin pieces. Now that's where they got it. You might find that interesting, but that's really not the point. What was it used for? Well, ladies, you know what? They didn't have CVSs and Walgreens, and they didn't have pharmacies, they didn't have grocery stores where you could go and buy sticks of deodorant. They just gave up on the men, but on the, on the ladies, here's what they would do. They would take a vial, and they would fill it with oil mixed with myrrh. And they would stop it with a cork stopper, and women would wear it, Jewish women would wear it around their neck, tied there by a piece of twine underneath their clothes, and when they needed to, they would unstopper it and dab it over their body. That's how they deodorized not just their bodies, but their clothes, their beds, their blankets, their homes. It was crushed, myrrh was, mixed with oil for its fragrance. Now, they used it for a second thing. They would put it in wine. And though it turned the wine bitter, it was like popping Advil. It was a mild analgesic. Don't you remember Jesus who was on the cross? He is being crucified. They put on the end of a long reed, a sponge soaked in wine and myrrh, and they held it to his lips. He tasted one taste, tasted the bitterness, and refused to drink it. I will go to the cross. I will experience all of its pain. I will not deaden it at all. That's how they had pain reliever. But that's not even the the fullest reason or application of myrrh. And I've got to take you all the way back to Genesis to teach this one to you. Don't you remember Joseph, whose brothers hated him? They were so jealous of him, and they threw him down into the bottom of a pit, probably a waterless well, and they left him to die in that heat, and surely he would, but he heard a caravan coming by, and I would think that the caravan came over to investigate if there was water that they could drink for their animals as well, and there they found and heard Joseph crying out. 
They pulled him up out of that pit, out of that well. They took him to Egypt and sold him into slavery. You know what that caravan was hauling, what its precious cargo was? Part of it was myrrh. And it was going to Egypt because Egypt consumed and used vast quantities of myrrh because they embalmed their dead. Embalming was about a 70-day process. It was so effective that even archaeologists today are finding mummies from Egypt that you can still tell the way they looked, even 3,000 years later. They embalmed their dead, and myrrh was one of the most common ointments to use to do it. Now, let's take you to Israel. Israel did not embalm their dead. You know what they did? They always buried you the same day you died. And the way that they would do it is they would take long strips, yards long strips of four to five inch wide linen, and they would soak it in myrrh and aloe and other spices, and they would wrap each of your limbs and then wrap all of your limbs tight by going around your entire body. That's how the Israelites buried their dead. And in fact, you're going to hear it here. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds of it. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. So why did the wise men offer myrrh as a gift that sprang from their adoration and worship? Why? They likely did not understand, but they were giving myrrh, which was a symbol of his suffering and death. You know, I don't like paintings of Jesus. I almost never look at them, but this one was so captivating that I wanted to show it to you as well. It's by Holman Hunt, and he painted a painting called The Shadow of Death. And in that painting, as you are about to see, as you are seeing, was Jesus emerging from his workshop and stretching. And Mary, his mother, is on the ground kneeling and working, and she happens to glance back at her son, and behind his body was casting a shadow of the cross. Look at the startle. Look at the jolt that comes into Mary's body. You could see the surprise and you could see the shock in his mother when she sees that shadow. Because behind the entire life of Christ was the reality that he was born to die. The myrrh, more than the gold, more than the frankincense, was given to the one who would die for us as the greatest demonstration of God's love that the world will ever see. In fact, Romans talks about it. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die, a mother for her child. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't die for those who had cleaned up their act. He didn't die for the beautiful people. He died for us while we were still sinners, rebels to the king of kings. And until a person recognizes that Jesus died, was buried, and resurrected, they cannot experience salvation. They must believe. 
And the gift of myrrh was a declaration of faith that Jesus, the Son of God, suffered the death we should have died and paid for and atoned for our very sins. Now, I am almost done, actually. But I'm going to ask you to give me every single bit of your attention, whether you're online watching this or you're here with me right now. You see, what we did was we understood, we've answered the question, what got the wise men's feet moving? It was not the star. That alerted them to the fulfillment of the prophecy. What got them moving was their desire to worship the king of kings. And that worship was a trembling, it's a quivering of your soul that longs with adoration to be with God, not to just do things for God, but to be with God. And when that is springing like a fountain from your heart, your gifts won't be tallied up for their cost anymore. They will be evaluated, is this even enough for my king? And we saw that the wise men brought the gold and their worship moved them to give it the symbol of the kingship of that little toddler boy. And then we saw them pull out of that treasure basket frankincense and give it to the king who will be and is the high priest who will make possible the salvation of all who believe. And then we see them bring out of those treasure boxes myrrh. Because the way that the king priest will redeem is through his own death. Do you believe? Do you believe that? See, we must come to Jesus believing that he is our king, our Lord. We must come to Jesus believing that he is our great high priest who brings about your redemption. And we must come to Jesus believing that the way he will redeem you, the only way that you can be redeemed is by dying and being raised to life again. And while I'm almost done, I have one more thing to show you. And I'm gonna do it through an example, an illustration of our own Christmas time with our children. Every year, just like a lot of your children, the school would open up a store and you could buy, the children could come in and buy gifts for their family. You remember that, right? If, they, if my children had money, which they usually had some, they would take their money, or if Denise and I needed to because they were buying gifts for their siblings as well, we would give them 20 bucks. And every single year, the most common gift that I would receive from my children every year was a coffee mug. And it always had something on it. And you know what? the handle would break off in about three weeks. Crack would appear in the side of it. You know what I would do? I would get out the super glue. I'd put the handle back on. Because those were precious to me. Because they came from my children. They came from my kids. And what was springing that gift was their love for me. And every Christmas morning and opening up that gift, and I knew what it was going to be. It was always a coffee mug. I treasured it. 
I valued it. Do you not know that your heavenly Father treasures your worship springing gifts? When you give to him with a soul that is quivering with longing for him, even the littlest things that we give him are treasured. He loves him. Friends, adore Jesus. Pray that the gospel would fill you with a longing to worship so your life doesn't come down into joyless duty. It's the worst way a Christian can live. Let this season, this season for giving, fill your heart with worship and give what is worthy to your Father. Let's pray. Father, I thank you, Lord, for your love for us. We have experienced your love because you have first loved us. And Lord, that is no idle point to make. Lord, that is huge. Father, I pray for every person here, Lord, that we would not be Christians, that just live this Christian life out of joyless duty. Lord, rescue us from that. Lord, let there be in us a fountain of worship and longing, quivering with adoration for you, that each day we will treasure When can I appear before you? When can we get together? When can we spend time together? And out of that, we serve. Out of that, we love. Out of that, we give. And it cannot be the other way around. Lord, let that be a reminder to us, Lord, to pursue you. And let the gospel, the good news, the vital power of Jesus Christ fill us with a well of longing and worship and love that is so deep, it just wants to pour out. And many, many get to drink through our lives. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen.